in your Bible this morning, the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, and if you would turn to chapter number 11, Deuteronomy chapter 11, and when you find it, stand there, if you will, please, and we will read, we will look at God's Word together. Deuteronomy chapter number 11. The first verse says, Therefore thou shalt love the Lord thy God, and keep His charge, and His statutes, and His judgments, and His commandments always. Now, that always means that that's still in effect, doesn't it? It's still relevant for us this morning. Go with me, if you will, then. We'll, We'll continue here for a moment. And know you this day, for I speak not with your children which have not known and which have not seen the chastisement of the Lord your God, or His greatness, His mighty hand, and His stretched out arm. And his miracles and his acts, which he did in the midst of Egypt unto Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and unto all his land. And then go with me for the sake of time down to verse 7. But your eyes have seen all the great acts of the Lord which he did. And therefore shall you keep all the commandments which I command you this day, that you may be strong and go in and possess the land whether you go to possess it, and that you may prolong your days in the land, which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give unto them and to their seed, a land that floweth with milk and honey. For the land, whither thou goest in to possess it, is not as the land of Egypt from whence you came out, where you sowedest sowedest thy seed and waterest it with thy foot as a garden of herbs. But the land, whether you go in to possess, is a land of hills and valleys, and it drinketh water of the rain of heaven, a land which the Lord thy God careth for. The eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it, from the beginning of the year even unto the end of the year. And it shall come to pass, if you will diligently hearken unto my commandments, which I command you this day to love the Lord. Love the Lord your God, and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, that I will give you the rain for your land in the due season. And skip down to verse 16. And take heed to yourselves. Say that to yourself. Take heed to yourselves. That your heart be not deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Thank you, and you may be seated. The subject today is the eyes of the Lord. And the text that I am going to focus upon is from verse 12. Look at it with me again. A land which the Lord thy God careth for, the eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year where we are right now until the end of the year. When Moses uttered these words, he had been leading the children of Israel now for over 40 years, and they'd gone through the wilderness. They had left Egypt as slaves. They'd come out now as a great nation ready to take possession of the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and all the people there. And The book here is called Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means a second law. 
the second law. And what it means is Moses gave the law again for a second time. Uh, In Exodus chapter 20, Moses gave the law to the people. And then now a new generation has grown up. It's 40 years later since the law had been given. And so to reiterate its importance and to help the people remember what God wanted them to do, he gives the law for the second time. Actually, he gives the law two or three times. He goes over it here in the book of Deuteronomy. So he's teaching with repetition. He's saying the same thing over and over again. And in chapter 11, again, if you'll go over to verse 26, he concludes his remarks with them by saying, Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. Now, that's a tremendous statement. I mean, that just nails it. It brings everything to a point. I set before you today an option, a decision, a choice. And you can choose a blessing or you can choose a curse. Verse 27, a blessing, but there's a condition for blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And there's the second option. You don't have to obey the Lord. A curse, if you will not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, and you turn away out of His way, which I command you today, and you go after other gods, which you've not known up until now. And so the blessings and the cursings. Now, the context to this passage of Scripture, and remember, you always have to look first at context when you interpret Scripture. If you don't, you're going to come up with some really wild interpretations. And most of the heresies and most of the false teaching that you encounter is because that people did not respect the context of the Scripture. Somebody said years ago, A text without a context is a pretext, and it is. You just have your opinion. That's all you're doing when you pull the Scripture out and you don't put it in its proper context. The context here is Moses is speaking to the children of Israel on the east bank of the Jordan River. They're about to cross over the river miraculously, and they're going to go in to the land that God has promised them. So he's reiterating the law to them, as I've already told you, in the strictest sense of interpretation in your Bible, these promises are for Israel. They're not for you and me directly. In fact, I'll even be more narrow in my approach than that. They are for Israel in the land. And if you read the book of Deuteronomy and you were to underline with, your bi- with a pencil Every time it says, in the land, in the land, in the land, you'll find that over and over and over, very repetitiously, that God's blessings to them were for a specific time to a specific people in a specific place. They had to be in the land. For example, he said, if you want to live long, obey your parents in the land. See, so today, We can't really claim that directly and specifically as a promise. However, I I caution you to, to be careful to not claim Old Testament Israel promises about prosperity. The prosperity preachers of today, they love these chapters right in here. You'll hear them preach from them all the time. 
And they're going to say to you, if you obey the Lord, then you are going to prosper. You're going to get well off. You're going to be happy. You're going to be healthy and all that. Well, though, you've got to put it back in context. Now, however, don't write it off. What is the value of the Old Testament to us? And it is God's Word just as much as any New Testament passage. But we've got to interpret it properly, contextually. Now, don't miss these uh, principles here. And don't say they have no application for us today. They were for Israel. That's what some people say. You see, there are universal principles here, and they apply just as much in principle to us as it did to Israel. Let me show you some of them. For example, in verse number 8, he says, You keep all the commandments which I command you today that you may be strong. Now, what he is, that's a principle that you can apply in your life. Because, you see, disobedience to God's commandments always bring weakness. Sin brings weakness. Sin is what makes a lot of people sick. They violated the laws of health. Sin breaks up homes. Sin destroys churches. Sin ravages people's lives. So in principle, even though you're not a Jew listening to Moses on the east bank of the Jordan River, this has a principle that certainly applies. You keep God's commandments and you'll be stronger for it. Verse 10 and 11, he says, the land where you go into is not like Egypt, a flat delta there by the Nile River, where when you planted it, you planted your seeds and then you watered it with your foot. What in the world has that got to do with it? Because in Egypt, they had this vast irrigation system of ditches that ran through their fields coming from the Nile River. And they simply would trip a lever, and they, those ancient Egyptians were quite sophisticated in their mechanical abilities, and the water would flow into the fields and flood the fields. And so they did it with an irrigation system that was devised by the Egyptians. Now, God said, when you go into the land, you're not going to be able to do that. It's not even a flat delta over there. The Holy Land is going to be a, a land of hills. And so he says in verse number 11, you have to depend upon the rain. You're going to have to depend upon God, not some device that uh, were, was devised by the Egyptians. And then in verse 13, notice here's a principle. If you shall hearken diligently unto my commandments to love the Lord with all your heart, and with all your soul, then God says, I will bless you with rain to them. But you know what? I believe if we do that, God will bless us in other ways, don't you? And certainly I believe he will bless us spiritually. And then I come down to verse 16. Here's a good one for today in the world in which we live. Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived, and you turn aside unto other gods. And it's so easy in our materialistic, secular culture today to get distracted and to turn to other gods because a god is not just something, an image. A god is anything that we value above our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So I, I, I want you to understand these are principles, and they're as relevant today. They apply always in every, in every generation. Now, let's go back then to our text with all that having been said. And God says, 
the land that you're going to is a land your God careth for. And God loves the holy land. He loves Israel. He makes that a point here. And then he makes a promise. And right in the margin of your Bible, here's a promise for you in this new year. The eyes of the Lord are always upon, here, here the context is Israel, but for us, it's our lives. There's an application for us, for our nation, for our family. The eyes of the Lord are always upon us from the beginning of the year, the 7th of January, until the end of the year. It's a year-round promise that we can claim. Amen? The eyes of the Lord are always upon us. Let me make some applications of that principle now. Number one, His eyes are on us for our protection. His eyes are upon us for our protection. And if you would turn in your Bible to the book of Job with me, I'd like for you to see something. Job chapter 1. Now, you don't pronounce it Job. It's Job, right? Job, a man's name in the Old Testament. Chapter 1, the devil comes up to God. Did you know the devil has access to God? And the devil says to God, I've got my eye on your servant Job. Now, listen to me real good. Job is almost a perfect man. Job is a godly godly man. But you know what? The reason Job serves you is because you've prospered him. He is well off. He's got a wonderful family. He's got it all. If I were Job, I'd serve you too. But you take your hand off of Job, and he'll turn his back on you. He'll curse you, God. You have put a hedge around Job. You're protecting Job. You knock down that hedge and see what Job does. You know what's the interesting thing about that? That's in verse 10. Read it with me. Have you not made a hedge about Job? A hedge of protection. And about his house? And about all that he hath on every side? Have you not blessed the work of his hands and his substance has increased? Because you're favoring him. You're protecting him. Here's what I want you to notice about it. It's not in the Bible. It's that God didn't defend himself. God didn't deny that he had built a hedge around Job. Of course I have protected Job because he's my servant. He loves me and he cares and he obeys me. Yes, I have built a hedge of protection about him. And then God says to the devils, you know, I'll take that hedge down and prove to you that whatever you do in Job's life, he will still serve me because his service to me is sincere. And so you know the rest of the story. And the story is, the, the principle is, God does put a hedge of protection around his people. And what are those hedges of protection? I thought of six of them. You may want to write them down because it would be an encouragement to you when you're going through some tough times. What are God's hedges of protection for us? His eyes upon us from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And how does He protect us? Number one, He protects us with His Word. His Word is the first hedge of protection. You see, if we obey God's Word, there's protection in that. 
And if we violate his word, as he says over and over here, we move out from under God's hedge, under his umbrella of protection, if you will. And how do we do that? Well, God's word tells us to be careful with whom we associate. He says in Psalm 1, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. And I see Christians every day violate that. They'll make their group, their circle of friends, the people who influence them the greatest. They're ungodly people. And you know what? When that happens, people begin to drift away from the Word of God. We are so influenced by the crowd of people that we run with, with our friends and, and, and associations. And so you see it there. God's hedge of protection from His Word says, be not drunk with wine. So if you go out and get on a drunk, you go out and get yourself intoxicated, you just moved out from under God's protection. And so if you have a wreck, don't get mad at God. You voluntarily move from under His his hedge of protection. If um, your attitude is one of hatred and godlessness, and, and, uh, or maybe your mind is always full of impure lust, maybe you're into pornography or something like that, violating principles of Scripture, then expect that things might happen in your life because, you see, God's promise is tentative upon our obedience. In the New Testament, Jew or Christian, Israel or America, God promises to bless obedience. God's hedge of protection, first, is His Word. Number two, there's another one. Your family is a, play, is a hedge of protection. Are you aware of that? And you see it in America as you see the complete breaking down now of family and a rising crime rate, for example. You understand that there is a correlation between those things, that God put you in a family. The Bible says that in the book of Psalms. And the reason he did is that, and if your children listen to me, young people, your godly parents, you may not like their restraints, but in their restraining you from your own foolishness, because the Bible says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, as the parents in their knowledge and in their experience restrain you, that's God's hedge of protection in your life. It keeps you from harm. God's third hedge of protection I've thought about is the state or the government itself. God instituted government. It's His institution. And so we have the armed forces, the military, to protect us. That's God's hedge of protection. That we have law enforcement who protects us from criminality. That's God's plan. In fact, read the book of Romans chapter 13, and it tells us that those people are God's ministers, God's agents to protect us in law enforcement. And you know what is so sad? When a nation refuses to enforce its laws, like we're doing right now down on the border in Texas and Arizona, when the nation absolutely refuses to enforce its own laws, when you have a president who is essentially lawless, when you have defund the police, then you wonder why there's gangs of people come in and clean out stores. 
They know that the law is not going to be enforced. The hedge of protection of government has been broken down. The church is another of God's hedges of protection. And through the teaching and the preaching, through the fellowship of the Lord's people, through people who pray for you, you're under that hedge of protection that God has for you, particularly in the spiritual realm here. When you stay in church and you're faithful and you're coming and you're being reminded on a regular basis of God's requirements and, and, and the cursings and the blessings of his, uh, of his economy, when you do that while well, you're being protected spiritually. And then I think of God's providence, those things that we just can't explain, but it's just the way things work out. That's a hedge of protection. Uh, I've so often been intrigued by the story about George Washington, that in the battle of Monongahela up in Pennsylvania, Washington had his horse shot out from under him by the opposing forces at least twice. They had to get him a new horse. And when he got through with the battle and he went back to his quarters, he hung up his coat and there were five bullet holes in his coat. God's providential perfection protection. You can't explain it any other way. The Indian chief who was fighting him said, we decided that the great white warrior, that's what they call Washington, we decided that God had protected him and in, in our efforts to kill him were in vain. That's the quote of his enemy. God's providential protection. I think of one another one that we don't talk about a lot in Baptist circles, the Catholic people talk about it a lot, but maybe we ought to talk about it more, huh? Psalm number 34, turn with me over there. God, I'm, I'm, I'm designating for you that God's eyes are upon us for protection from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And I've given you the various ways God protects us through His Word, through our families, through the state, through the church, through His providence. But look in Psalm number 34 and verse 7. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. And I wonder, do you believe in guardian angels? Well, this is where the Bible teaches it, that God has his angels. What are angels? Hebrews says they are spirit beings that are sent for the blessing of God's people, to minister to God's people. And though because we can't see them while we don't talk about it much, we don't think about it much, but your Bible clearly teaches you the presence of God's guardian angels is what we call them, but it's based there on Psalm 34. And when you're driving down the road and suddenly a deer runs out in front of you and you say, boy, I'm lucky, was it luck? Or maybe it was God's protection on you. Maybe somebody's on their cell phone and crossing the center line, and you swerve over and you say, boy, I sure am lucky today. No, no, maybe that was God's angel that was grabbing that steering wheel or pushing that brake. Don't secularize everything. Don't think like the world. Think like God's people, that God is everywhere and God is working all the time. In verse 13, he says, hearken diligently to my commandments. If you want God's protection, listen to me carefully. 
This is my first point, and I've got to hurry here. I've spent a lot of time on it. But I want you to walk out of here today saying, you know, God protects me. And he says, hearken diligently to my commandments. That's the key to his protection. That's the key. That doesn't mean that bad things won't happen in your life. There are other forces that I don't have time to describe. And listen to me, hearken diligently. Don't be satisfied with the shallow, frivolous, entertainment-oriented, feel-good Christianity that's so popular in our day. It's not going to sustain you when the bad times come, folks. I'm going to tell you, when you walk behind that casket and the dearest one on earth is in it, you need something more than a frivolous, entertainment, feel-good theology. You need to have hearkened to His commandments and gotten them deep in your heart and in your mind. His eyes are upon us for protection. But number two, His eyes are upon us for guidance. His eyes are upon us to guide us. Psalm 32 and 8, I will guide you with my eye, He says. I won't turn you there for the sake of time. Psalm 32 and 8, you can write it down. But God says very clearly and very simply, I will guide you with my eye. What a promise. Only God knows what 2024 holds. The challenges, the problems, the tragedies, and the successes. You're going to encounter some or all of those in this new year. And you can set your goals and you can seek God's will. You should. I hope you are. You can devise strategies and plans for your life. But you know, there's always another dimension operating, and that's what is God doing. What is God doing in our lives? Turn in your Bible over to the book of Acts, chapter 19. And it's so important. I want you to see it. I could just quote the verse, but I want you to, I want you to follow it. Maybe mark, you may want to mark it. In Acts chapter 19, and in verse number 21, the apostle Paul said, after these things were ended, Paul purposed in the Spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Acacia, he purposed in his heart to go to Jerusalem, saying, and after I've been there in Jerusalem, I must also see Rome. I must also see Rome. Paul's plan was to go to Jerusalem, revisit his friends in the churches there that he had known, and then leave and go to Rome. Paul had, that was his plan. Just like you have plans for this year. And you should have plans. You should strategize. You should set goals. And Paul did all that. But listen what he said. He had no idea what was going to happen. He went up to Jerusalem. Do you know the first thing that happened? There was a mob scene, and he got arrested. He got lied about and falsely charged. He then went to jail in Caesarea for two years as he was awaiting trial. And then after the trial was over, he ended up appealing to Caesar, and they put him on a ship, and the ship wrecked. And he spent three days bobbing around, he says, in the depths of the ocean holding on to a, a timber of some kind. And then he went on shore, 
and he got bitten on the hand by a cobra. And all the people gathered around and said, we're going to watch this man die, this foreigner. And after he didn't die, they said he must be some sort of a god. And so they tried to worship him. And God used that in their lives. He gave them such favor with those people when they saw that he wasn't going to die from the cobra bite that Paul had the opportunity to preach to him. And a great number of people were saved as a result of that. He ended up in Rome, finally. But boy, what a, what a route, what a circuit he had to make to get there. You see, every plan he had was frustrated, but God was using him. And because, God frust- because your plans are frustrated, it doesn't mean that God has forgotten you. It may mean that God is watching you, as the text says, and that he's guiding providentially behind the scenes. He ends up in Rome, and in Philippians chapter 4, verse 22, he thanks the Lord that he has had an opportunity to take the gospel into the very heart of the Roman Empire. He has been influencing the household of Caesar. I'm quoting that, the household of Caesar. He's taken the gospel right into the belly of the beast, into the very family of the Caesar. He is now being used of God. And God was guiding him all the way. Let me tell you, folks, God wants to guide you this year. And you could save yourself a lot of heartache sometimes if you just let the Lord guide. How's he guide? He guides through his word. So read it every day. That's one of the goals I've tried to emphasize here. He guides you through prayer. Colossians says, continue in prayer, meaning devote yourself to prayer. Spend a lot of time. Pray constantly. Pray over and over. God answers prayers. I don't always have direct answers to prayers. But, boy, I get enough of them answered that uh, I'll tell you, I have to tell you about what happened to me this week. Answer to prayer. I mean like that. And you, you can't appreciate this. But you don't know the pressure that a preacher feels when it's Thursday or Friday afternoon, and you don't know what you're going to preach on on Sunday morning. i got to face all those people and those TV cameras, and i got to say something I haven't said in 55 years, 54 years. Oh, God, help me. So I'm going through my Bible looking and looking and looking and looking, and I'm picking up books, and I'm reading little tidbits. And I said, Jane, go get me the old New Year's file. I may just have to resurrect a dead message back there. And she brought the file and put it on my desk, and I reached down in there, and I, I just picked up a, a little thing I cut out of a, out of a magazine somewhere. I said, someday this will be good. And I cut it out, and do you know what it had on it? Deuteronomy chapter number 11 and verse number 12. The eyes of the Lord are upon you from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. I had just prayed 30 minutes before, Lord. I mean, y'all laughed when I said that, but I was praying. I was desperate. Oh, God, I I will go to China and be a missionary if you'll just give me a sermon for for Sunday morning. And just like that, he gave me a sermon. Now, I don't always get that. I mean, but I had a pretty good thing going that day. I'll tell you, I I was ready to pray again. But uh, I don't always have that. 
But I, I thanked the Lord. I said, Lord, you answered my prayer. I felt like a new man. I went home and said, man, it's so good now. I don't have to worry about it anymore, Norma. God answers prayer. God uses the prayer to guide you. God uses the church to guide you. You're sitting here right now. I venture to say this is the stillest and the quietest you'll be all week. It'll be the longest period of time you have to reflect and to think and to evaluate your life. And if you're not here, I know what you'll be doing. You'll be on the phone. You'll be talking to people. You'll be distracted from the deep things of the heart that I'm trying to take you to. And the Lord gives you the Holy Spirit to guide you. The Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 16, 13, you may want to write this one down, this reference. He, when he has come, will guide you into all truth. When he has come, he will guide you into all truth. The Holy Spirit of God rises up within you and gives you that impression. It's as strong as, as my mother used to say, strong as garlic. And you just know that God wants you, what God, how he wants you to go. Number three, quickly, his eyes are on you to bless you. And here's another one I want you to turn to. Will you turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 16? This is, man, this is one of the best. Well, we've got it on a slide. You don't even have to turn there. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. See, that's what the other verse says. To show himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. That was said to Asa. Asa had turned away from the Lord, and the prophet said, and up until now, you've been serving the Lord, and he's blessed you, and boy, God had blessed him. But now you've done foolishly, and from now on, you're going to have wars. You're going to be chastened of God. You've turned against God. You've forgotten God. But the first part of the verse is where I want to look. The eyes of the Lord. They're upon the land from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. They're running over the whole earth. And God wants to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. People who are not perfect in everything they do, but their heart is, I want to please my Lord. Proverbs 10 and 22 also talks about God wanting to bless us. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. Earthly riches can have sorrow attached, but God said, my riches, there is no sorrow with them. And lastly, his eyes are on us for accountability. His eyes are on us for accountability. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And there's a definition I've used of the fear of the Lord through the years. And I've slowed down and given it to you so you can write it in your Bible. And I don't have time for that right now. But read it with me if you will. The fear of the Lord is the continual awareness that I'm in the presence of a holy, a just, and an almighty God that his eyes are upon me, in other words. 
and that every thought and word and action and deed is open before his eyes. There's my text. And is being judged by him. That the eyes of the Lord are upon us from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And it's what is the eyes of the Lord? They give a, if I'm thinking right about them, I have this continual awareness that God is watching me. And this is an encouragement to do good. If God is watching, I'm going to be on my best behavior, am I not? It's also a deterrent to doing bad. The things that I know would break his heart and hurt him. You know, I was talking to somebody this week, and I said to them, you know, here's something that I fear, and I fear it particularly with our young people, and parents, watch for this with your kids. You need to be discerning about this. I fear that they're in such a biblically saturated environment in our church and in our school that after a while, Jesus can just become to them a concept. He's just an idea. And, it, and that's wrong, and that won't motivate you to do the right thing. You see, Jesus has to be to you a person, a real being, a man just like me and the other men in this room. But it's a man who God embodies. God lives in that man. He's real, and he's watching, and he sees everything that we do and every act and even the motivation for what we do it. And if he's real to you, boy, it will keep you. It will protect you. It'll keep you from sin. If he's just an idea, just a concept, just something about something we talk about, that has no power. I'll tell you a personal story. My mom and dad drilled into me like probably as much as any other thing they ever taught me that God knew everything that I did and everything that I thought. And not to get, put me on a guilt trip, but to remind me to live a life that he would be pleased with. And I was a senior in high school. It was back in a couple centuries ago now, 1961 and graduation day at Edmonds High School in Sumter and 700 kids in the graduating class, big school. And somebody came to me and said, you want to come tonight after graduation, after you get home and everything? We're going to have a bonfire down in the woods at Camp Burnt Gin, other side of Florence. And uh, you want to give a couple dollars or a dollar to buy the food and so on? I said, yeah, I gave him a dollar. I showed up that night about 10, 30, 11 o'clock. My mother warned me. I got there, big bonfire and a couple of pickup trucks. And on the back of the truck, there was a keg of beer. And there was food, and everybody was laughing and talking, graduation night. And so I stood around and laughed and talked with my friends, ate. Everything in me, every cell of my body wanted to go over there and get me a cup of that beer. I didn't care anything about beer. I never tasted it. I've only tasted it once since. Just a sip, that was all I needed. 
everything in me because I wanted to be cool. I wanted my friends to say, Bill's okay. And then I remembered, Mama, uh, Mama will beat me. But then I thought, Jesus, he's watching me, and he's going to be real disappointed if I go over there. His eyes are upon me. The fear of the Lord, the continual awareness, I'm in the presence of a just and holy God. And I don't say this to brag on myself. But I didn't go over there. I wanted to. I wanted, so wanted to be accepted. But I didn't. And I thank God I didn't. Because probably that night, unknown to me, I was making a decision that was setting the sail. I'm not going to do it, even when the pressure's on. It's not the way I'm going in life. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That we may receive the things done in our body. He's watching for protection, for guidance, to bless you. And one day we will give an account to him. Our heads are bowed.